Good morning. I must say what a joy it is to be with you all this Sunday. My name is Chris Reed. I'm a pastoral intern here at Grace, and it is bittersweet to be preaching my last sermon here as an intern. I just want to say thank you, church, um, over the last three years for your kindness, your encouragement and support as I've studied uh, and been an intern here uh, for ministry. I'm truly grateful. Um, this morning, we continue our series in the book of Acts, looking at the early church, and today we look at the start of the church with the ascension of our Lord Jesus, but before we look at this passage, will you please pray with me once again? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this Sunday. God, after the week uh, we've had in our country and our world, we need a word from you and you alone. I ask that you would speak to us this morning. I ask that I would communicate your word uh, with clarity um, and that I would communicate it faithfully. I ask that you uh, soften our hearts and focus our minds on what you have to say uh, from Acts 1. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is often told of a famous composer who had a rebellious teenage son. This son used to come in late at night after his father and mother had gone to bed and before going to his own room, the son would go to his father's piano and slowly, as well as loudly, play a simple scale, all but the final note. Then leaving the scale incomplete, the boy would retire to his room. Meanwhile, the father, hearing the scale minus the final note, would writhe on his bed, twisting and turning, his mind unable to relax because the scale was unresolved. Finally, in dismay, he would stumble down the stairs and hit the previously unstruck note. Only then would his mind be able to sleep once again. What a picture! A father unable to rest until his son hit the final note. I share this story because we Christians have been unable to rest until God's son has hit the final note of redemption. We too cannot fully relax until the sun brings the fullness of the kingdom of God. We too stay up at night, unable to ease our minds until all things are made right, until the restoration of God's creation. We long for the consummation of all things, the glorification of God's sons and daughters. We worship our Savior Jesus who died on the cross in our place, paying the debt we could not pay. We celebrate his resurrection from the grave on the third day when he defeated sin, hell, and that grave. And yet we still long for the fullness of God's kingdom to be brought here on earth in grace and righteousness. We long to be conformed to the image of Christ, being able to see him and love him face to face. We long for all sin and wickedness to be subdued by the reign and rule of God. As grievous sin and evil continue to wreak havoc in our nation, our world, and our own lives. As humans persist in rebelling against God, though we too are prone to be those who rebel against him. As we lament the sickness, sadness, and hopelessness that family members and friends experience, it was the Apostle Paul himself who summarized it in his letter to the Romans. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We long for the day when death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, 
The parent who wishes for a world that was safe and secure for your children. A world that reaffirmed the values you instill in them at home each day. Hopes for the kingdom of God. The middle school or high school student who feels the pressure to perform in every area of life to be accepted, approved, and appreciated looks forward to the day when you can just be in the kingdom of God. The one who is overworked, overburdened, exhausted, who has been yearning to take a break, searching for a rest that no vacation can satisfy, thirsts for the living waters of the kingdom of God. The single person longing for companionship. The married person longing for renewed companionship in your own marriage has a soul ache for the kingdom of God. The Christian citizen who desires a government that submitted itself to the teachings of scripture. Whose leaders were characterized by justice, righteousness, and integrity. Your heart desires the kingdom of God. However, it is in this tension The scholars call the already but not yet of God's kingdom, meaning Jesus has brought the kingdom, yet it's not yet arrived in all its fullness. It is in this space where Christians are tempted to become discouraged and dismayed and complacent and defeated in the faith because of the fallen world we live in. Our our minds are taken off our mission of spreading the good news of Christ to those around us, and we end up stagnant or even worse, shrinking back from what Jesus has called us to because we feel powerless in this fallen world. And it begs the question, does it not? Why should Christians feel empowered and encouraged to minister in this overpowering and discouraging world? Surely this is where we find the first century believers of our passage this morning. Here, God's people are living amidst the, amidst the powerful yet corrupt and abusive Roman Empire. There are factions in society, ethnic and cultural division. From the beginning in Genesis 12, God has called his people to be a blessing to the nations, though they hadn't always done that. And, and everyone is searching, yearning, hoping for the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to, to come to rescue God's people, to bring them from this present evil age. Be that as it may, Luke chapter 2 brings us good news. The Savior has arrived. He was born on the backside of a cheap motel in Bethlehem. He grew up and lived a sinless life. And this Jesus came to give his own life for the sins of his people, to reconcile all things back to the Father. And and our text today is a bridge between the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And it answers the question, why, why should the church feel empowered and encouraged to go spread the gospel message in a world that is often overpowering and discouraging? Well, in our passage today, Luke the author gives us insight into this question concerning the kingdom. But before we arrive there, we first need to remember that Jesus' earthly ministry was not the end, but just the beginning of his ministry. Verse 1, Luke opens up, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here, Luke begins by sharing that not only is he the author of Acts, but it was him who composed, who made the first book, the gospel, according to Luke. 
This is Luke the physician, that great historian who overlaps this second volume, the book of Acts, with his former work, the Gospel of Luke. And just as he dedicated Acts to Theophilus, the Gentile God-fearer, he, he does the same to his gospel work as well. And while each of the four gospel writers bring a different perspective to the story, all the writers have the same main character in their story. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. For the content of Luke's gospel was a detailed account of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Luke wrote about the virgin birth. He described Jesus' signs and wonders. He expounded the teachings of the Lord, so much so that he summarizes his gospel narrative as being all that Jesus began to do and teach. Nevertheless, there is a word in here that Luke does not want Theo to overlook. A word in this verse that Luke does not want his readers to glance over too quickly, and it is that word, began. Luke's first book. His gospel writing was all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began means Jesus started his work, but he hasn't done working. Began means there was still more that Jesus would go on to do, and, and Luke wants you and me to understand that his gospel account was not the end, but only the beginning of all that Jesus would do and teach. When he called that paralyzed man to pick up his bed and walk, healing his body completely, it was just the beginning. When he reached out to touch the leper who nobody else would touch, cleansing him of his sickness, Jesus was only beginning. When he forgave the sinful woman who anointed his feet with her hair, giving her new identity as a beloved daughter of God, Jesus was only beginning. When he told the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, showing how God goes after his wayward children, he was just getting started. When he opened the scroll of Isaiah, saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind. It was just the beginning. As you read the scriptures, amazed at the beautiful work of the Lord, know that the same Jesus who was at work back then is still at work today. He has not finished moving, but continues to move and save and deliver and restore. And Jesus is in the gospel of Luke's account, and it is the beginning of his ministry. Luke's gospel, narrating all that Jesus began to do, goes up until Jesus was taken up to Jesus ascending to heaven, going back to the Father from earth. This, of course, was after Jesus had given orders by the Spirit to his chosen apostles, those 12 disciples he had selected for his special purposes. Jesus told them what they were to do after he was gone, but, allow, but along with Jesus beginning to minister in the Gospels, he also displayed his resurrection power in the Gospels. Because it was to those same apostles that Jesus also presented himself, showed himself, living after his suffering. For Jesus was bound, the Greek said, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and it was there that he was betrayed, arrested, suffered many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes. He was, he was crucified, died, and was buried, as the Apostles' Creed tells us. Friday was a sad day as they hung Jesus up on the cross and buried him in the tomb. Saturday was quiet as the disciples and the women who had followed Jesus had, had just seen the death of their Lord and friend, but it was early on Sunday morning when the earth quaked and the stone was rolled away and the angels appeared and they said, he is not here for he has risen. 
And just as Jesus got up from the grave, he presented himself. 1 Corinthians 15 said it was over 500 humans who witnessed the risen Christ. They saw his physical body, the the scars in his wrists and in his side, confirming that Jesus' resurrection was not a made-up event, but he indeed rose again from the dead. And after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the people over a 40-day period in which he convinced them that he truly was alive and well, speaking to them regarding God's promised rule of his kingdom. Therefore, the earthly ministry of Jesus was not the end, but just the beginning of Jesus's ministry. While the Gospel of Luke tells the story of the earthly ministry of Jesus, Acts continues this story. But we learn that it is from this point that Jesus desires to minister through his people, the church. But not only does Jesus desire that we, his church, be used in his kingdom work, but Jesus provides what we need to be effective in his kingdom work. Verse 4, Luke continues the story after Jesus resurrected. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. During the 40-day period in which Jesus was with his apostles, he meets with them, instructs them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And this promise is the Holy Spirit which God will give. Because Jesus knows, in order for the church to accomplish its mission... In order for Jesus' followers to accomplish the tasks he has called us to, in order for Christians to live faithfully unto the Lord, we, we need to be equipped with the Holy Spirit. For it's God's Spirit who would empower his disciples for Christian mission. It's a sad sight to see God's people trying to do God's work without God's help. And Jesus tells his disciples that he is about to call them into his mission. But the mission is so important and will require so much that, that they must not go from Jerusalem, but wait there to be equipped with God's Holy Spirit. This is what the believers need. They, they need faithful dependence on God to fulfill their mission. This is the spirit who God promised in the Old Testament. This is, this is the spirit Jesus taught his disciples about, saying, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. Remember, John's baptism was a preparatory washing, showing one is ready to come to God. But for all followers of Jesus, there'd be a better promise, one that signified that the Savior had come, and this was the promise of God's Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we find that not only does Jesus know what his people need for effective ministry, but he provides what they need for effective ministry. As one writer put it, Effective Christian ministry needs both God's direction and God's enablement, which Jesus gives. Jesus instructs his people to, to wait in Jerusalem and will enable them by God's spirit to do God's kingdom work in Jerusalem. And, and so it is with you and me, friends. It can, it can be easy to feel defeated, overwhelmed, and unequipped for ministering in this broken world, but but remember that Jesus both knows what you need for his kingdom work and has equipped you to be effective in his kingdom work. He instructs us by his word and, and moves us by his spirit. 
My parents are here. I told my mom yesterday I used her in a sermon illustration. She was nervous, but it won't be bad. Um, I remember back in elementary school, at the beginning of each school year, the school would give me that supply list, which detailed everything I would need for my third grade year. You need four folders, Chris, and two packs of pencils, a glue stick, and lined paper. And surely, I knew I was not about to go get that thing. So I gave the list to my mother, and lo and behold, I would come back from school, and on my bed would be bags and bags of Target-bought school supplies. Not, not only did she know what I needed for the journey, but before I stepped into the school on the first day, she had already provided what I needed for the journey, child of God. The Lord not only knew what you needed to be effective on this Christian journey, but he has already provided what you need to be effective on this Christian journey. God God knew you would need a spirit. And for every person who has accepted Christ as Lord, you've been given the spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. Truly, we, we do need to study and pray and mature and be taught in the scriptures so we can teach it to others. But, but we are truly equipped for what God has called us to do. So depend on God's instruction in your times of need. Ask him to fill you afresh with an awareness of his presence. Pray that he stirs your heart again, giving you renewed passion for the mission of Christ. You've been given the spirit But if we're being honest, in this, in this discouraging world, often it would seem better and much easier if Jesus just showed up, returned this evening, and we wouldn't have to worry about any type of ministry. And this is where we find the apostles in Acts chapter 1. Verse 6. Luke begins, So when they had come together, They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, as Luke told us, after Jesus resurrected, he appeared to the apostles several times over a 40-day period. Jesus has gathered his 12, the women who have followed Jesus, as well as other members of their core community. And while the group is with Jesus, they pose to him a question. They begin to inquire, to seek out, to know from Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is a crucial question. This is the key question. Because remember, this is the great hope of God's people. This is what the Israelites have anticipated for generations. God had promised Israel that one day he would send a Messiah, a Savior, to to come rescue them from their enemies, saving the righteous and restore them in the land of peace and protection. For it was It was the prophet Jeremiah who who prophesied years ago, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Thus, this is an honest question by the group, because the Old Testament teaching that was, was that connected to the coming of God's spirit would be the restoration of all things for Israel. They expect the restoration to be here and now. But along with this being an honest question, it also reveals the hearts of these apostles as well as our own hearts. Because what's the context of Acts 1? Where is Israel in Acts 1, both spiritually and nationally? The Bible told us that there was a time when Israel was a great nation. God was their king who rescued them from slavery in Egypt gave them the Mosaic Law, 
protected them from their enemies and gave them the blessings of being his beloved children. But despite God's love, Israel continually abandoned God to serve false idols and live unjustly. God remained faithful, though, sending the Messiah and promising restoration, though, though here in Acts 1, Israel is on the margins. They're under the Roman yoke, cheated by tax collectors, beaten down, divided, and defeated. They, they look at their society, and it's still broken and chaotic. And the verb restore means to change to an earlier state or condition to restore to former dominion. This is a political question. Ergo, what the apostles are really asking is, Jesus, when will you restore our nation to its former days of prominence, power, and prosperity? When will you put Israel back on top? When will you make our nation strong again? Notice there are no questions about the mission of God. They don't inquire even about the kingdom of God or the saving of the Gentiles, but their desire is for Jesus to restore Israel to its former days of glory because it's always a temptation for us to set our hearts on regaining the prominence of our earthly kingdom instead of setting our hopes on God's coming kingdom. But watch Jesus' response. He said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice Jesus does not condemn their question. Nor does Jesus deny the restoration of all things will come soon. But rather, he says, it is not for you to know when the end will come. It is of no concern to you the timing of these things. And while this might sound like horrible news for the apostles, it is actually the most freeing news because while the apostles don't know in the end the restoration of all things will come, there is someone who does know, one who has ordained, planned, established the time of restoration. And it is the Father. God himself is fixed by his own authority, the timing of the last day. He will bring the fullness of his kingdom in his own time. I know the world looks dim. I know Christians are no longer esteemed in our society. I know it's scary for our children. I know the amount of sin, rebellion, and evil is definitely increasing, and the temptation is to worry, to ask, to predict even. When will the last day come? What day will Jesus come back? How can I gain some control? But, but as the Lord said to Paul when he pleaded with him to take the thorn away, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Re remember the God who is sovereign. Remember your God who remains faithful, the God who removes kings and sets up kings, the God who created the mountain seas and the galaxies. The sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the Father. It is not for us to know, but the Lord knows. Our hope, our trust is in him. Though not only has the Father established the time of the end, but he gives power for his mission in the meantime. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. Jesus says, God will take care of the end. I need you to go out and minister. This is why I told you to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit. This is why I said it would be to your advantage that I go. This was the promise of the Father. For the Spirit will empower you to speak boldly, testifying to the message of the gospel. 
through the power of the Spirit, you will be enabled to be my witnesses in the earth to spread the good news of God's salvation, the good news of God's forgiveness of his kingdom. Church, this was the mission Jesus was referring to back in verse 4. This has been the call of God's people since the beginning in the Old Testament. God would pour out his spirit so that we would be enabled to be Jesus' witnesses, bringing the gospel from Jerusalem to the rest of Judea, to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. For my lawyers, that word witnesses, that's a legal term, meaning to testify directly to what one has seen. And as a result of the Holy Spirit's empowering, those who had seen the resurrected Jesus, who had a direct encounter with him, were sent out to go proclaim that Jesus lived, died, but rose again as Lord. This is a world mission, how God would push the gospel out to reach people, not just Israelites, but all of Jesus' people in the nations. But as one commentator writes, just as the empowerment of God's spirit was not for the witnesses alone, neither is the commission to testify about what one has seen. Every Christian is called to bear witness to the gospel story. We're all sent out as witnesses testifying to what we have seen and experienced from the Lord Jesus. Has he saved your family? Has he forgiven your sins? Has he healed your soul? Has he put back together the broken pieces of your heart? When you were lonely, did he bring you into his family as a child of God? Has he, has he given you joy, hope, and eternal security? Not everyone is called to be a preacher, missionary, deacon, or a teacher, but, but each of us has a story to tell about our encounter with Jesus. We're, we're all called to be witnesses at work, at school, in our neighborhood, spreading the good news of God's salvation in Christ. For this is part of our church's mission statement, to be Jesus' witness in our community and world. We bear witness not only by telling others about Jesus, but also by our behavior and our words. This is especially for my young people. The things we say and do around our peers tell them what they should know about Jesus. We call attention to the gospel by our service, our selflessness, hospitality, and humility. How will you be a witness this week? Jesus calls his disciples not to be focused on the timing of the end, but they are empowered by the Spirit to take his message of the gospel outward, being his witnesses for his power and ministry are sufficient for us in these uncertain times. But the question remains, how do we know we will make it as Jesus' witnesses in this overpowering and discouraging world, why should Christians be confident as ministers in the gospel? And this is the main point of our text this morning. We can live empowered as Jesus' witnesses in the earth because Jesus ascended to reign above every prince and power on the earth. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Oh, that's super cool. And a cloud took him out of their sight. This was the day Luke was referring to back in verse 1. Jesus gives his people his commission and he is taken up. That's where we get that word ascend to heaven. But it's in Jesus' ascension where we find the power and hope to go out and be his witnesses. It is here where Jesus ascends that he takes his rightful place as king over all the earth. 
It is in Jesus' ascension that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is in Jesus' ascension that he is exalted as Lord. For Psalm 110 read, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is Lord over all of our enemies. Jesus is king over every government, ruler over all the earth. It was his death on the cross where he offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us back to God. It was his resurrection where he loosed the pangs of death, showing that death could not hold him. But it's in his ascension that he assumes his throne as the exalted king, the one who triumphs over his enemies and holds the reins on all things. Because Jesus ascended, every prince in power must bow in willing subjection. Because Jesus ascended, hopeless situations will not last forever. Because Jesus ascended, we have victory in his name. Because Jesus ascended, he has shared with us his power by the spirit to be used for his kingdom. But suddenly, while the apostles are watching Jesus' physical body being lifted up from the earth, something happens. The text says in verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men by, stood by them in white robes. Luke explains that two dudes show up out of nowhere, angels in white robes, appearing to explain Jesus' departure. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. For the angels explain, do not be surprised that Jesus ascended to sit at God's right hand. But just as he departed, he will come back to complete what he started. God's plan of redemption and restoration will be brought to completion. He will return in glory to save the right, righteous. Fret not thyselves because of evildoers, for they will soon be cut down. Jesus is not late, but, but he has gone to prepare a place for us. So let us not look idly, merely waiting for Jesus to return, but, but may we be obedient to the mission he has called us to. And as I conclude, today we learn that Jesus is the ascended king who by his ascension has been enthroned over all the earth, has commissioned us into his kingdom work. By his spirit, Jesus has enabled you and me to proclaim the good news of Christ. But because Jesus ascended, we now have a mission to fulfill after we leave today, to be his witnesses. And in this world where it's easy to become discouraged and defeated at everything we see, know that Jesus is the king who has conquered it all. He is not surprised by anything, but he will restore all things at his return. We know where we are headed, and that is to experience the fullness of his kingdom. So, so go out this morning empowered, encouraged, as you are sent out on mission this week. Praise Jesus, because he is our ascended king. Amen. Amen. Dear God, I thank you for um, dying on the cross for us and resurrecting, but I also thank you for your ascension. You have conquered all, and you are above everything that may discourage us. I ask that we would put our trust and our full hope in you. Help us to put our weight all on you. And when it's easy to try to predict and ask when the end will come, when you will return, I ask that you will give us the grace to continue on mission and trusting that, that you will bring the restoration of all things in your time. 
We thank you and we love you. We ask that you encourage us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.